Well, good morning and, uh, and welcome to Journey again. My name is Randy. If I haven't met you, I'd love to do so. And I'm grateful for young men like Eric, because us old men are about to die, I think. Um, uh, it's been an interesting three weeks or so uh, with this thing. This kind of goes everywhere I go, my new friend, best friend. And uh, I did have rotator cuff surgery and also some bicep repair uh, in there. And I don't, I don't do rest sitting around very well. So it's been a, a challenging time for me in a lot of ways, not only get recovering, but just kind of living life. And let me just tell you what this thing is because everybody wants to know off the bat. Uh, it's a ball, I guess, that you're supposed to be squeezing and everything. So I don't want you to be distracted the whole day. I go, what is that on his wrist? Um, that's, a, that's a squeeze ball. All right, get that out of the way. Uh, but I'm glad you're here. And uh, uh, thanks for all the prayers and food and all that stuff you guys have done. And uh, Tony, is it okay as I just say, uh, you're, you're in the ball, you're, you're up next? Tony's going to have a little surgery his own self. Um, this old guy's, uh, you know, we're wearing out. Thank goodness for Zach, Eric stepping up, uh, but we're, we're getting brand new bodies. And by the way, that's what we're going to talk about today, even more importantly uh, than new joints and the repair and stuff, we're going to talk about brand new bodies. So I'm excited all about that. Let me ask you this. What is the most important thing in life that you might know? The most important thing that you could ever know. I, I was uh, intrigued by that question, so I did a little research online, like we all do. I just Googled that. What's the most important things in life to know? And here's what I came up with, a list of items. Time usage, money management, finding balance in life, how to be a good friend, the value of hard work, helping other people, the power of a smile, the importance of an education, and a million other things that it's hard to argue with to say, those things are important. It's important to know those things and to incorporate those things into your life. But when I read through their list, I thought, you know, there's something missing here. There's something missing in this list of important things in life. And obviously we know what that is because we know that the element of our faith holds with it the most important aspects of life over and above all these other things that we've just listed here. And so today we're going to be talking about the important things in life, and in fact, the most important thing the Bible says. But you know, I was thinking also the Bible's full of important things as well. The Bible's full of important truths, like how did this world, how was it created, and where do we personally come from, and who Jesus is, and who is God? And what's the meaning of life and, and the purpose of life? Why did God put us here? What does God want me to do? What happens after I die? There's a lot of great information in the Bible, but, but you know what? There's something even more important than all this information in the Bible. And that's what we're going to center on today. We're in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15 here. I'm going to just jump in and start reading, and then we're going to get to what Paul tells us the most important thing of all. Uh, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. Let's read together. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, I hope you know what the word gospel means. The word gospel means good news. It means great news. Something has happened. In fact, this was so important that we named this entire series uh, about good news because I want you to know there is good news in a bad news world. 
And sometimes when we watch the news, we read the news, we think, man, we just need some good news. Oh, here it is. The good news is the news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said it best that in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's kind of the good news right there, the gospel. And Paul says, I want to remind you of that. The fact that God knew what was going on on this earth, he'd made, he didn't just make it and walk away. He knew what was going on. He knew the brokenness of mankind, the brokenness of our world. And God stepped in and sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come and to save anyone and everyone who would accept the invitation and the offer of salvation that he extends. This is the gospel, which we as believers, Paul says, that we have heard we have believed, we have accepted, and we have taken our stand on the gospel. It's important to understand that being a Christian means you take a stand on something. And you believe it, and you live it, and you commit to it, you sacrifice for it, and you trust that God's going to give you the answer and reward you in the end. And Paul said it is by and through him and through the gospel that we are saved if we hold firmly to it. I think it's interesting that the word if is in there. If's a big word, only to be two letters. It's a really big word because notice he says there must be an option. If always is an option. If you hold firmly to the truth, you'll be saved. But if you do not hold firmly to the truth, you could be lost. Notice how clearly he says that if is in there. We must hold firmly to it. By this gospel, we are saved. We're saved from sin. We are saved from hell. We're saved from the wrath of God that will come upon a wicked world. And we're saved from eternal separation from God. Now, you might ask the question, why do we need to be saved? I mean, I look at this room. Look, you look like a bunch of pretty good people. I know most of you pretty well. And I don't think you're bad people at all. But here's the thing. We all need to be saved because we're all sinners. And our sin separates us from a holy God and dooms us to hell. But Jesus came to our earth to live and to model a perfect life for us and then to rescue us. And that's the good news proclaiming that we can never forget. And we need to be reminded that often because we live in a world that's just screaming for our attention. Every moment there's something new coming, new information, new technology, new uh, facts coming at us. And a lot of those facts are not good news. A lot of those things are very distracting. A lot of those things are going to pull us away from our faith and going to preoccupy our thoughts and times. And Paul says, you need to be reminded of this frequently and reminded it was all prophesied before. What's that? Why is that important? Why does Paul say this is according to the scriptures? It's because something that is predicted and actually happens has a lot more credibility to it than something that just pops up. And so everything about Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament thousands of years before it actually happened. That's important. That's a verification, a certifying that it's true. And then he picks up with where we really want to go today. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. How in the world can someone say that of all the things in the Bible, this is the most important thing? That's why it's important for us to look at it today, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And then to all of, and then last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Paul says this is of first importance. It's the most important fact in human history. 
It really is. Even more important than the birth of Jesus is the resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul gives us four lines of reasoning or four evidences that support this claim of of supreme importance. First of all, that Jesus died. Jesus died. You know, most people will not argue with you about the fact that Jesus lived. There are people who will go back and they'll say, yeah, you know, we know Jesus. He was an important teacher. He was a great rabbi that day. You know, he was a prophet, a lot of different titles that they'll give him, but they don't believe that he was a son of God or that he died for the sins of the world. I mean, there are books and movies and even religions like Islam that are designed basically to try to convince or deny that Jesus died. It's a way of minimizing or diminishing who Jesus was. So it's important that we understand and establish the fact that Jesus died. You know, uh, there have been people who down through the years have proposed theories about Jesus' death and resurrection, and, and one of them is the swoon theory. And the swoon theory was that Jesus went through hardships, but he kind of blacked out, and then later on he woke up, and so he really didn't really die, he just kind of swooned, or uh, he was kind of unconscious for a while. But let me tell you what Jesus went through before he actually died. Before his death, he underwent what was called a flogging. And a flogging was a brutal beating that they would, often the Romans would, would hand out to people that they were about to crucify. And they would take a whip that had long lashes on it and was tipped at the end with bits of metal and bone. And they would throw it, slam it, and then rake it across the back of the victim. And this didn't just get the back, it would take the sides around the neck everywhere. And the bits of bone and metal were designed to do ultimate damage, but sometimes they literally would just strip the body of flesh and oftentimes they would disembowel the person as well. And you imagine what that would be like to be ripped to shreds with, with a whip. And so Jesus endured that. And many people died, actually, in the whole process of flogging. They didn't even have to crucify him. They just died because of that process. But Jesus, after that, endured that. He was bleeding. He was dehydrated. He was in shock, deep uh, sleep, depra- uh, de- uh, deprived of sleep because he had been up all night. And he went through all of that after a lengthy trial And then he was forced to carry a heavy cross. They say most often it was the cross beam that they would carry on their back to the place of crucifixion. And when they arrived there, he was thrown down on that beam and he was nailed through his wrist and his feet to the cross. And then he hung on the cross in the sun and the elements for six hours. Imagine what his human body was enduring during that time. Also keep in mind that these were professional executioners. And they took a certain pride in their ability to, number one, keep a person alive long enough for them to suffer, but also, secondly, to make sure they were dead when it was over with. I mean, if you were an executioner, the ultimate failure would be if you didn't kill somebody. And so their goal was to kill, and they were really good at it. They probably did it on a regular basis. So it was not the disciples who said, I don't think he's breathing anymore, he must be dead. It was these professional executioners who declared that their work was done. Their, 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 their death had been accomplished, what they had set out to do. And oftentimes they would come along and if the person was lingering, they would break their legs so they couldn't raise themselves to breathe anymore. But in Jesus' case, they didn't have to do that. By the way, that was another prophecy that his bones would not be broken. But they did shove a spear into his side. They went up into the sack of the heart 
And whenever they did that, out poured blood and water together, mingled, showing that he was dead. There is no doubt that Jesus was dead. But you know, when you you look at that, you say, well, you know, a lot of people have died for what they believe in, right? I mean, it's not just there are Christian martyrs who do so, but it's not just Christian martyrs. There are many people who who die because of what they believe. And, uh, And so what's the difference there with Jesus? Paul reminds us that Jesus didn't just die for what he believed, that Jesus died for our sins. In Romans chapter 3, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it goes on to say in Romans 6, that the wages of sin is death. As I said before, all of us have sinned, and we all have that in common, but sin is devastating to our relationship with God. Sin breaks our connection with Him. Sin, uh, sin just devastates any connection and relationship with God. And only Jesus, who was both God and man, could pay for our sins. I couldn't do it for you. You couldn't do it for me or anyone else. So Jesus died as a substitute for us. And He paid the penalty of death. Jesus died so that we don't have to be separated from God. So that's an incredibly important fact, but there's more, obviously. Secondly, Jesus was buried. And the proof of Jesus' death was the fact that he was then taken off the cross and put in a tomb. He did not fake his death, and the disciples whisk him away, and then he come back a couple of days and pretend to be alive. That's not how it happened. After the soldiers pronounced and declared him to be dead, a couple of very legitimate And wealthy Jewish leaders, who also were believers in Christ, took him off the cross, and they paid for about a hundred pounds of spices and linen to be wrapped around his body. It was how they uh, buried the dead in that day. They would kind of like mummify them. And they would take those spices, they would wrap them up for burial. One of those leaders offered his personal tomb that had never been used to allow Jesus to be buried in. It was that day they would carve into a stone, a a cave-like structure, and then they would put the body in there, and after a a couple of years or so, they would gather the bones, put them in a box, and then they would bury other people, other family members. But this tomb had never been used before. And so he volunteered that, and the Romans agreed to let that happen. And uh, then they took the body, they put it in the tomb, laid it on the platform there, And then they rolled a huge stone in front of it, which was a custom of that day, uh, to seal the tomb. And then they put a a Roman seal, the seal of the governor on it, which would be wax, maybe his ring, they would seal. So basically what it said, if you you, uh, separate or tear this seal, you're in big, big trouble. You could be put to death yourself. And then they posted a Roman guard over the tomb to make sure that nobody messed with it. I mean, the scripture gives us all of that, all of that information, and there's no, there's no uh, discussion or disagreement that all this happened. Jesus was buried. And the very fact that the government stationed the guard there assures us that Jesus was in the tomb, that he was there. The third thing Paul says that we know is that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the amazing fact. This is a, the climax of it all, that Jesus rose from the dead. And this very fact sets Jesus apart from any religious leader who has ever lived down through time. I mean, no one else has ever raised from the dead, and nobody else has ever even claimed that their leader raised to the dead. You know, and you say, well, doesn't the Bible talk about other people coming to life again? Yes, it does. In the Old Testament, there were people that the prophets, men of God, would touch and speak to, and they might come back to life again. Jesus, in his ministry, 
He raised people to life again, but nowhere, no one else ever came to life again by their own power, without someone, without someone touching or calling them out of the tomb. And this is no small feat. And it's of greatest importance, Paul says, to the claims of Christ. In fact, all of Christianity basically hinges on this central issue, as we're going to see in just a few moments here. Once again, the scriptures had prophesied that this was going to happen. There are hundreds of scriptures that have predicted that Jesus would be, would be put to death and then would come to life again. And there's a lot of evidence about his resurrection. For one thing, there was the empty tomb that was hard to explain except for a resurrection. You know, there was no secret about where this tomb was, and I'm sure that a lot of people beat a path to the tomb to see it empty. I don't know what it is about something that's empty like that, but people want to see it, right? Several years ago, when I lived in Indiana, there was a, there was a murder in our, in our county and kind of a drug-involved thing. But anyway, knew, we couldn't find the body for, for a long time. They knew the guy was dead, but they couldn't find the body until finally uh, we were told that um, they had gotten some, uh, some information. Someone told the police, and they found the body. Interestingly enough, just across the road from where we lived in a barn, someone they had buried the body in concrete, and uh, then they had found the body and dug it up. Well, that's intriguing. And so uh, what do we do? We want to go see where the body was, right? <laughs> so we all piled in a van, and we ran over there to see where the body was. And it was a little bit eerie, but yeah, you know, the concrete was, you know, shaped where the body had been. I don't know, it was a sick curiosity, but we wanted to see. I got a feeling people in that day wanted to see where the body was. There's no doubt that people went to the tomb and then they saw it and then that was pretty much it. You know, there's not much to see when there's nothing there. It's also interesting that people today go there to see the empty tomb. In fact, Tony, I believe, was there to see the empty tomb. That's pretty good evidence that, there's, that Jesus isn't still there. The tomb was empty. That's verified. And then there were those embarrassed guards who really couldn't explain or stop the resurrection. And later they were paid to say the body was stolen, but, but even that was kind of shameful for them. But you know what? The most convincing proof of the resurrection was and that was Jesus, that Jesus appeared. And that's the next point he says, Jesus appeared. There's eyewitness testimony that Jesus was alive after he was dead and buried. You know, of all the evidence that, that someone can present in a court of, of law, of all the evidence, eyewitness testimony is the best. It's hard to refute an eyewitness who is reputable. And so in that day, Jesus was seen by many, many people. He didn't hide the fact of his resurrection. It was public news and public discussion. Two or three people together, they were probably talking about this man, Jesus, who had come back to life again. And the Bible talks about several people who saw Jesus the very first day of his resurrection. The first one seemed to be Mary, who went to the tomb early to continue the preparation of the body. But when she gets there, she sees the tomb is empty. And the soldiers are gone trying to explain what happened, I'm sure. And she sees someone she thinks is the gardener. It turns out to be Jesus. She sees him. And then later that day, random disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus, they, they run into Jesus and he appears and talks to them. And then that night, Jesus appeared to many of his disciples together. So there were a lot of people who saw him the very first day. But Paul says, he gives a list of people and it's interesting who Paul said first, or gives in his list first, who saw Jesus. He begins with Peter. And that's probably because, for several reasons, that Peter was the unofficial leader of 
the 12. He was uh, kind of acknowledged to be the spokesman. But also keep in mind that Peter was the one who had denied Jesus the night before his death. And so Jesus reinforced Peter's place. And I'm sure that Peter apologized and Jesus restored him. But here's another thing. Peter was one of the best known apostles. He was known to the church at Corinth. So if someone says, well, so-and-so saw him, there's a lot of credibility. Peter had a lot of credibility that day. So he mentions Peter. And then he goes on to say that he had the other 12 apostles. Of the 12, probably know most of the names, but there was one named Thomas, remember? Thomas, who we called Doubting Thomas. Why? Because Thomas wasn't there the first time when Jesus appeared. And Thomas said, until I see with my own eyes and touch with my own hands the body of Jesus, I will not believe. And so Jesus gave him that privilege, and he saw, and he believed. Jesus appeared not only to his friends, though, he appeared to a lot of people. Paul goes on to say to a large group of 500 people or so at one time, maybe more. I mean, that's a large public event. So Jesus didn't hide his resurrection. He was available. He was out there. And he was widely known that he was alive. In fact, probably everyone was talking about Jesus. Everybody who wanted to see Jesus probably could go and see him. And if they hadn't, they could talk to an eyewitness who was available. And it's interesting that Paul says when he writes this, and and I was curious, I'm always curious about dates and times and everything. This was written about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. This book was. And so Paul says, there's a lot of those eyewitnesses that are still alive. If you want to talk to them, they're still out there and they would love to tell you about what they had seen. And then Paul says, not only those people, but there's another man named James, who was a brother of Jesus. You know, we're told that several of Jesus' disciples, or excuse me, Jesus' family members seemed to be skeptical of his claims during his ministry. But then after the resurrection, his family got on board. In fact, two of them, his brothers, James and Jude, wrote books of the Bible, the New Testament. And so Paul mentioned, or mentions that James saw him as well because they were convinced. And then last of all, Paul mentions one other character. He mentions himself that he had seen the risen Lord. You know, Paul had been called to be the apostle to the to Gentiles several years after Jesus' resurrection. This is kind of getting on. Paul was not a contemporary of Jesus. He, he was probably younger and, uh, and maybe didn't have any contact with Jesus, but he had grown up in the Jewish faith and he was a strong advocate for, uh, for the law and for the uh, uh, and against Jesus. In fact, he was not a friend of the church. He hated the church, everything about the church. He hated Jesus. He hated Christians. And he made it his mission, in fact, to persecute and kill every Christian that he could possibly find. That's what he did for a living. But then on the the way to, to do that, Jesus appeared to him in a vision and made a believer out of him. And it transformed his entire life. And he went from being a murderer of Christians to being a pastor of, teach, of Christians, an evangelist of Christians, and he devoted the rest of his life to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He became probably the, most, uh, the greatest missionary who ever lived. And you know what? Paul had some memories of, of his past. Paul had some guilt and shame from his past. And this is what he says. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect, 
No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. You know, the Bible says that those who have been forgiven much love much. And Paul was that guy. He had been forgiven much, and he loved the Lord. He was committed. He said, the grace of God had its effect on me. It made a powerful difference in my life. God had chosen Paul not because he was a good man. He wasn't a good man. He might have thought he was a moral man, but he was killing people. That's not a good man, right? God chose him because of his grace. And Paul reminds us that we're all sinners, every one of us who are saved by grace. And Paul knew that personally. He understood that like Peter and all the other disciples did as well. He also understood that our goodness does not save us only by the grace of God. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. Paul could not boast. In fact, he can only be ashamed of what he had done, but it was the grace of God. He boasted in the grace of God. You know, our salvation was purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross where he died, he was buried, he was raised, and then he appeared again. And so the resurrection is foundational to our salvation. And in fact, that's why there is such indisputable proof of the resurrection. God wouldn't leave us with doubts and just say, well, Jesus resurrected, that's it. No, there's indisputable proof of that. And we can believe that and live in confidence of that. And so in the next few verses, Paul uses a logical argument here, not only to prove the resurrection of Jesus, but to remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus and to state the significance of the resurrection itself. Why does the resurrection matter? I mean, isn't the life of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, isn't that more important than than the death of Jesus and the resurrection? Not at all. The resurrection is the greatest event of all time. Let's read again, 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sin. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all of all people most to be pitied. See, Paul's kind of raising the stakes here, and he's saying, you know what? This is how important the resurrection is. Everything hinges on it. Your faith, who you are, your future hope, heaven, everything hinges on the resurrection. And it reminds us of a couple things. First of all, that if we don't have the resurrection of Jesus, that that's not true, then death is going to defeat us. The Bible says that death is our enemy. We hate death. We fear death. We don't want to die. We do everything we can to avoid death. We go through surgeries so we don't suffer and die. We take medicine. We wear seat belts and have airbags in our cars. We use common sense. We don't want to die, right? It's the enemy. But no matter how hard we try, we're all going to die someday. It's going to happen to every one of us. But Jesus overcame death. He came back to life again. And if Jesus didn't do that, we can't either. It is the hope that we have after death. You can't do it on your own. No matter if they freeze you sarogenically, 
and then put you in a microwave someday and defrost you, it still ain't going to happen. You're not going to be death. It, it's not gonna, you're not going to come back to life if not for the resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, he says, if Jesus is dead, the apostles' teachings and preaching is worthless. If Jesus didn't come to life again, we're wasting our time. We should have slept in this morning, right? Because the preaching and the truth of God's word is revealed because of the resurrection. Number three, if Christ is dead, is dead, Christianity is worthless. There's no forgiveness of sin. There's no grace. There's no mercy. If Jesus is dead, there's no hope beyond the grave. You know, whenever a believer dies, you know, often I will remind them that, yes, we're grieving, but the fact we do not grieve is those who have no hope because we have the hope of resurrection. And without the resurrection, those who have died in Christ are lost. We're all living a lie. Paul says that we're foolish and we're to be pitied. But what I love is that Paul turns the corner here and he says, but that's not all true. Not true at all. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man also. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits then, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Paul says Christ is alive, and he is the first fruit of the resurrection. He opened the way for us. He started it, and now we get to join him in that. So for every Christian who dies or falls asleep, he says, we're just napping, basically. We're just taking a long kind of extended nap. Our bodies are going to rest in the ground or in an urn or whatever we do with that body, and the soul's going to be with the Lord. And our bodies will rest until our soul is sent to retrieve it with the return of the Lord, and they will be joined together in a resurrected body like Jesus was. And there won't be any surgeries, and there won't be any sickness, and there won't be any handicaps, there won't be anything in those resurrected bodies. It will be beyond our comprehension. And that is great, great news. Great news. And being human, we share in the curse of our ancestor Adam, talks about that as well. But in Christ, we share in the glory of the second Adam, Jesus, in the resurrection. And Jesus will come and he will overcome our death like he did his own, and he will raise us to life again like he did his own life, and then hand us over to God the Father. You know, Paul kind of summarizes this in verse 23. He says, that this is the order. There will be the resurrection of Jesus, and then there will be the resurrection of believers at the return of Christ, and then the end will come, and Jesus will destroy all dominion and all authority and power on this earth, and he will reign over his enemies. And then he will give the kingdom to God the Father, present it to the Father, holy and blameless, and then we as believers will truly, truly live happily ever after. And that is the good news, that we can live and we can proclaim. And we should rejoice in that. We need to hold that close in our hearts, but we also need to hand that out to a world that doesn't get a lot of good news. They need to know the truth and the danger of not knowing and, and accepting this. Now, for us this morning who are here, the main thing is that you are in Christ, is that you have that hope. The main thing is that you have experienced and been saved by grace through your faith in Christ Jesus. 
that you respond to the grace, the goodness of God by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior and then submitting, believing, repenting of your sins and being baptized. Guys, here's how baptism ties it all together. I'm going to wrap up with this. Romans chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Do you see in that scripture what we've been talking about? How that baptism is a picture of this incredible promise, incredible good news of Jesus. That whenever we're baptized, that we identify with Jesus in his death, that we die to ourself, that we're buried in the water, the waters under the water of baptism, and then we are raised up. Just as Christ was raised, we are raised to live a new life, a life of resurrection and hope that prepares us for eternal life. I love the picture of baptism that Paul presents there because it just kind of wraps everything up and ties it with a bow that we've been told is the good news of first importance. Guys, I want to share with, just tell you that, you know what, this life is temporary and everything we go through is temporary. I have to remind myself of that sometime, that this is just a season to not have a right arm. It's just a season and it's going to get better. But let me tell you, even the blessings and the, the difficulties of this life, this is just a season because we are not living for the moment. We're living for eternity. And if you don't have the promise of that, then I would love to talk to you about that. It's the most important thing ever. It's more important than anything. What you do, how much money you have, how little, it's more important than anything. If you don't have that hope, then I would love to talk to you about that now or, or at some, some point soon, I hope. As we're going to wrap up this morning, <clears throat> and uh, like we always do, we want to just offer you this time to come. If you want to talk to me, I'm going to be up front. Uh, Tony, you're going to make your way up here and, and be available uh, for people to pray with. Zach's available. Uh, all of us are here, and, and if, um, we'll have an intercessor to step up as well, someone to pray with you. But if you would just want to come up this morning and just thank God for the resurrection. Can you imagine anything to be more thankful for? Just praise Him and worship Him and, and make this a time, uh, truly a house of prayer. We would love to invite you just to step forward in a moment to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord God, uh, our minds cannot even be wrapped around the whole idea of the resurrection, but God, we have gotten a picture today of what it might be like. Father, not only that of Jesus in all of his glory and power, that we'll see him one day in his resurrected body, but Lord, also that we will have our own. God, help us live for that in that hope, in that moment, in that promise Never, ever give that up, God. Never let that be overshadowed by anything, God. It's the most important thing in life. Thank you for drawing our attention to it, Lord. Help us to worship you and all of your glory, your son Jesus, and all of his power. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let the church rise and worship.